I'm Camilla Jansen, a GP in the New Forest in Hampshire, and I'm presenting this podcast for you today on coronavirus, discussions with an emergency department doctor. So, as a GP, knowing how secondary care is dealing with coronavirus in terms of numbers through the door, the flow through the hospital, understanding how they are clinically assessing and managing these patients is very useful and insightful. How do they assess a patient's oxygen, for example, oxygen requirement, for example? What criteria do they use to determine severity and likely deterioration? Is it, it is helpful for us to understand the decisions that inform a patient's discharge and understand when secondary care would like us to refer patients back into their service for further assessment. I think it's really important to ensure that we're giving a consistent joined up message across primary and secondary care. And we can only do this if we have a good understanding of what our secondary care colleagues are doing. So we need to strive for good communication channels, ensure we're supporting each other as best we can and learn from each other in these evolving and uncertain times. So I'm very pleased to introduce Helen Keaton. She's an emergency department doctor from Southampton Hospital. She's one of the consultants and she has kindly agreed to give us a bit of an insight from a secondary care perspective. So welcome Helen and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And I just wondered if you could give us an overview of what you're seeing in the emergency department at the moment in terms of number of COVID patients and, and how, it's, how it's working. No problem. So at the moment, COVID has been reducing in numbers since the lockdown started. We were very busy at the beginning of January, very considerably busy about a week after Christmas, funnily enough. But actually, since then, the numbers we're seeing with COVID coming to the emergency department each day are now starting to reduce. Um, we have a special area in the department where we see symptomatic patients suggestive of COVID. Um, and speaking as of yesterday in Southampton, which has um, 1,100 beds, there are currently 248 inpatients with COVID. We have around 50 of these on intensive care. Our normal intensive care number of beds is 26, so that's significantly more than usual. In ED, we're seeing about 40 patients a day go through our respiratory assessment unit, um, which is the area of the emergency department whereby symptom, uh, sorry, patients with symptoms suggestive of COVID go for initial assessment and further review. Around 20 to 25 of those test positive for COVID, four to five a day with COVID end up in resus and about one or two of those go to intensive care. Okay, lovely, thank you. Because I had watched a podcast on one of the London hospitals and they were saying their numbers were so large through the door that they were finding it difficult to socially distance um, because they were having four patients to a cubicle. Are you having the same st stress on the system down here? Uh, I think we are luckier in Southampton for a couple of reasons. Similarly to the first wave, London got very quickly overwhelmed with sheer numbers arriving at emergency departments. We've been much luckier on the south coast, well, certainly at Southampton. Portsmouth haven't felt it being quite so gentle. Their numbers have been significantly higher. Um, however, we've been okay. They've been, we've been able to socially distance and we haven't got to the point of having to double bay patients in recess, though we've had the plans in place to do so if necessary. I think we're lucky because we're a larger hospital, which means we've been able to convert uh, other intensive cares. In fact, we have multiple intensive care units because of being a tertiary centre into 
uh, intensive care units for COVID patients, which has very much helped with our flow. Okay, thank you. And do you have any idea of the um, risk of getting COVID if you do come into the emergency department or into the hospital? Uh, so the national average rate of um, risk of catching COVID in hospitals, the nosocomial infection rate, is about 20 to 25% across the country. There are some hospitals where there's 50% rate. We are very proud of ourselves at Southampton with a rate of about 11 and a half at the moment. Um, the supplies of PPE have been very good, um, and but it's down to the basics as it always should be, washing hands, wearing face masks, um, and keeping people appropriately socially distanced. Thank you. And have you got a different method of people turning up at the emergency department? Do they need to pre-book? Do they need to book in on an iPad, which some hospitals are using? What's the method of um, flow in the ED in Southampton? Uh, so we're still much of an old fashioned human being model, um, whereby you either arrive by ambulance or on foot. We do have the 111 direct service whereby appointments are made by 111 for patients coming up to the hospital, but still the majority arrive either through the two routes of by ambulance or self-presentation. Uh, they are then met by either a receptionist if you walk in or a streaming nurse if you come via ambulance and both presentations, you get the same set of questions asked of you. As you can well imagine, have you had the same questions that you will ask at a GP surgery? Have you had a fever, new cough? Um, have you tested positive for COVID in the last 14 days? Um, those types of questions. And then based on that, you will get moved to an appropriate part of the department. We are lucky enough to have a screening test um, called a FebDX test, which has got a high sensitivity for having a viral infection. So any patients suggestive of COVID have this test done on them. It's a pinprick blood test. Uh, that takes 20 minutes to give you a result. If it's negative, um, the likelihood of them having a viral infection is very low. So they're able to move to the non-COVID areas of the department. If positive, they remain within our respiratory assessment unit and get treated as if they would be COVID positive. Um, and that's how we've been able to manage our flow through the department this time compared to the first wave where we had to separate into blue and red areas, which became overwhelmed quite quickly. Okay, and uh, what sort of numbers are you seeing in each area? Are they equal or is it heavily weighted towards the COVID ED presentations or viral? No, no. So COVID is probably about one fifth or a quarter of our workload. The majority of our workload in ED is your normal emergency department patients with every other presentation other than COVID. Okay, thank you. And so if you get a patient that presents with um, potential COVID symptoms, what are the typical tests and investigations and how are you assessing these patients? Um, so we, we get three main groups of COVID patients presenting to the emergency department. The first group are the patients who don't have any respiratory type symptoms, so lethargic, off their food, mainly off their food because everything tastes so disgusting. Um, been suffering with fevers, generally just feeling unwell. Um, we measure, as with every patient, a full set of observations, uh, making sure that their oxygen levels are above 94. And then they have a COVID panel of blood tests and a chest x-ray done. Um, and if there's no changes on the chest x-ray and their blood tests, which include things like your usual full blood count, usernees, 
uh, we include LDH, CRP, D-dimer, troponin. If they're all okay and the patient has adequate social support and are able to cope at home, they will just be turned around and discharged from the respiratory assessment unit. And that is a lot of what we see in the emergency department by the emergency department clinicians. We then have the next cohort of patients who are patients who often present around day seven in their COVID infection, who have started to have respiratory type symptoms. They may or may not have had a pulse oximeter already at home, and they're starting to show saturation levels 94 down to 90 um, in our respiratory assessment unit. They again get the same panel of investigations. They're often seen directly by one of the acute medical consultants who work in the emergency department with us. Um, and if they're sat to dropping below 92 and are requiring oxygen, that's a you're going to need to be admitted criteria. Then if their SATs are above 92 at rest, we then do ambulatory SATs on them to make sure they remain above 92 on exertion. Um, and if those criteria are fulfilled, along with having a normal looking chest X-ray and normal blood test, they're able to be discharged home. Patients with SATs that are OK, but are showing markers of severity on their blood tests or on their chest X-ray, will either have been seen directly by the medics or will be discussed with the medical team to make a decision about whether they would be for admission to the hospital or there is a COVID at home team who would keep in contact with them on a daily basis to see how their COVID symptoms and their saturation levels are progressing. Okay, and then the third group are the very poorly patients who come directly to resus. Okay, lovely, thank you. And um, out of interest, can you just describe the typical x-ray changes you would see with a COVID patient, just for us GPs that never see a, an x-ray anymore? <laughs> yeah, certainly. They are, they are, they're quite classic and it's just too much white through both lung fields. So you've pretty much got a speckled pattern of white down both lung fields and it's bilateral. So, 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 it's, a, so it's sort of very diffuse and fills the whole lung rather than a segmental sort of pneumonia picture. Yes, and we do still see the um, lobar and more focal consolidation coming in as well. And there are some um, examples of COVID patients who have a um, super added uh, bacterial pneumonia type picture on top. Um, and so a lot of patients do receive antibiotics as well as DEX if they're requiring oxygen. Okay, thank you. And um, you, you talked about sort of D-dimer and CRP, which are sort of um, measurements that we're familiar with. What sort of levels are you seeing, for example, CRP initially? What are you seeing with COVID? Um, so our markers of severe disease, and these are the patients that are at the highest risk of deterioration, even if they appear well on presentation, and which is why we use this set of um, investigation results to guide us on whether to admit or not. So... Um, a D-dimer of greater than 1,000, um, and there is a greater risk of PE with COVID, but most of the time with COVID, you do see a degree of a raised D-dimer, normally somewhere between sort of 300 and 600 level. So once they're getting above the 1,000 level, it's the, yes, this is a marker of more severe COVID disease, but also raises that question of actually, do you have thromboembolic disease on top of your COVID? Um, and some patients do also get investigated in ED for, uh, for a PE um, and will have a CTPA. If the picture isn't classic for COVID, for example, they're still significantly hypoxic, even with 
high flow oxygen, or they don't have the bilateral infiltrates on their chest x-ray that would fit with the degree of hypoxia they have, um, or if they look like they're a COVID patient. And clinically, the sick COVID patients are still able to hold a conversation with you, even when dramatically hypoxic. But for example, a patient like that who would then test negative on a COVID swab will then be questioned, actually, should this person have further investigation for PE? But most of the time, that question is taken as part of a package of the rest of the investigations done. Um, everyone gets VT prophylaxis, if, unless there's a contraindication if they are being admitted with COVID because of that increased risk. The other things we look at are an LDH greater than 243. Um, not something that in ED we're used to looking at, not a test we would ever do, but we've got very good at looking at them now due to COVID. Um, and a CRP greater than 100 and any degree of elevated troponin. And the troponins we're seeing are sort of around the figures of 25 up to 100. A kind of mildly raised troponin of my cardiac muscle is unhappy rather than I have absolutely no blood going to my cardiac muscle kind of level. Okay, thank you. And going back to the D-dimer and the thrombotic events, I yes. think the thing I was listening to was saying that you get more de novo um, pulmonary embolus, uh, sorry, uh, pulmonary thrombus rather than emboli. Is that what yes. you're seeing? Um, to some extent, uh, it's a, a, a lot of these patients are developing symptoms as time goes on rather than the majority. I think we've probably seen a small percentage, you know, single figure percentages of these patients with thrombotic disease compared to severe COVID. Okay, thank you. And um, with regard to treatment or actually going back to assessment, can you just um, explain how you assess oxygen need, um, oxygen requirement? Uh, yes, certainly. So at a very basic level, um, a, a saturation reading with a normal SATS probe, and then if that's greater than 92, they are got up out of bed and made to walk up and down a space with a SATS probe on their finger and the, the machines just watched it's as basic as that um, for your ambulatory saturations. Once you're getting to the point of needing above 10 litres of oxygen to get your SATs anywhere near the 90s then we do arterial blood gases on patients but most of the time the readings you get on a SATS probe with these are adequate for decision making. Okay, lovely. And I think there was some discussion as well about whether we should be asking patients to exercise remotely to see if they desaturate. And the answer was probably no, we shouldn't be asking them remotely because if they do collapse during their exercise, if it's remote consultation, we can't support them. Would you, would you um, agree with that? Yes. And most of the time with our ambulatory SATs, it's the last thing we do to the patients. So by the time we ambulate them to see what their SATs are, they've had their x-ray, they've had their bloods done. We've, we can see them face to face, you know, what they're looking like, what the rest of their observations are. And then the last thing we do when we've decided we think they're a candidate to be discharged is get them up and ambulate them before they leave. Or if their SATs drop too low, admit them. Okay, thank you. And what treatment are you using to change these sort of outcomes, improve the mortality and morbidity levels with this? So most of what we start in ED is 
just oxygen. They, um, any patient requiring oxygen also then gets dexamethasone, um, which is just six milligrams orally if they can accept it. We do have it IV as well, but most patients are not distressed with our hypoxia with COVID and will happily be able to continue to drink and take oral dexamethasone. Um, quite a lot of patients when they arrive at hospital are getting doxycycline as well for query superadded infection once, but these are the patients they have to be requiring oxygen before they get these medications. We're not giving these to people with SATs over 92. Um, and then there is obviously treatments that patients are getting further down the line in hospital. Um, but you need more information before we give them. Um, so, for example, um, there was, there's been quite a few studies looking at um, other treatments that have been given. The, um, the resdemivir. Uh, has quite strict guidelines before you can give it. So they have to be on oxygen. They've had to have blood results back. So they have to have a uh, liver function test five times greater than normal. So we're not actually starting that in ED very often. It's normally started later down the line once all the investigations are back, if it's felt to be a benefit. Uh, and then much above that is whether the patients need CPAP or very occasionally intubating. Okay, thank you. And I think when I discussed with this, this with you earlier, you had an interesting comment that when they were first seeing COVID, you were feeling that they needed to be supported um, with CPAP or intubation early on. But since then you found that actually giving oxygen in the ambulance, they can have quite low SATs, yet they can be functioning remarkably well compared to other people that might have other infections or diseases with similarly low saturations is that a fair reflection yes and i think that was one of the big anxieties in the first wave was that there was a real fear we were going to be overwhelmed with patients everywhere that were going to need intubating immediately and we were going to have all these ventilated patients down the corridors in the emergency department but actually it really hasn't turned out like that and covid is a unusual disease shall we say and the fact we see a lot of patients who are incredibly hypoxic. So, you know, saturations of 85, 87 on 15 litres. If you can imagine seeing a patient with an acute exacerbation of asthma with saturations that low or a life-threatening PE, you know, they are sweaty, they are air hungry, they look grey, they are clutching you because they can't get that last breath in. Patients with COVID tolerate it incredibly well and they will sit there with a non-rebreathed mask with 15 litres of oxygen flowing through it on their phone they'll be able to chat to you they're not respiratory distressed with it and certainly in the first wave I remember turning around one day in the majors area and looking at the nine spaces we had along one wall each of which had a covid positive patient in all sitting there with 15 litres of oxygen, just happily watching around the department. There's not the same degree of respiratory distress with it. And actually, by the time people have become, people often call the ambulance, their SATs are low. They then get put on high flow oxygen, which makes them feel significantly better to how they've been at home. And there isn't the panic. There is enough time to be able to assess them, get investigations, 
get an ABG to decide what level of hypoxia they do have. Um, and then people have taken more time as the knowledge has improved. And now we have CPAP readily available in resus to start patients on if they are profoundly hypoxic. And in the first wave, I think, you know, I saw a good few hundred patients with COVID and only actually tubed one patient in ED. And the same this time round, we may put one or two patients a day on CPAP. The patients go up to intensive care, either on high flow oxygen or on CPAP, and they're tubed up in intensive care rather than in ED. There is more time. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that probably leads into the reason why the COVID at home service is um, reviewing patients for the silent hypoxia, because as you say, they're not getting very symptomatic with it or less so than we would expect. Um, yeah. So, so, so that, that's a good note um, to remember. So you haven't talked about anticoagulation because these, these patients are sort of pro-coagulate, so in a pro-coagulating state, potentially when they've got severe COVID, do you use anticoagulation in the emergency department? Do you discharge patients on this? No. So the only patients who get anticoagulated in the emergency department treatment dose anticoagulated are patients who we've proven have a PE in the emergency department. The majority of patients who are commenced on oxygen who are known either known COVID positive, which with the second wave, the majority of patients we know are COVID positive because they tested positive a week ago compared to the first wave when the testing just wasn't available. Um, they will have, once they're admitted to the ward or if uh, time in ED means they will be started on uh, prophylactic anticoagulants, um, but no one is discharged with anticoagulation. If they're well enough to go home, uh, they aren't given any anticoagulation to take home with them. Thank you. And when you say when they're diagnosed in the emergency department with a PE, for example, are they having their CTPAs sort of there? Yes. So they're the patients that go from that we have high enough risk and high enough worry about that we will send them for a CTPA from ED and then have that answer there and then. Okay, that's good to know. So, we're, so if we move on now to discharging patients, yep. what informs your discharge and um, what information do you give patients and safety netting and advice about when to represent? Um, so most of our decision making is, so the factors that we use are a lot of weight is put on oxygenation um, and that gold, golden level of 92, um, but also in combination with their investigation results. And then as we do with any emergency department patient, what is their social setup? Have they got the support at home to be able to cope with the situation they're in? And a 23-year-old COVID-positive patient may or may not cope better than an 8-year-old. And we know the mortality increases as you get older. Um, we have a good information leaflet that talks through what to do with the sort of viral type symptoms. Because the majority of patients we're sending home are patients who are displaying symptoms of a normal viral infection, the achy joints, the feeling lethargic, I'm off my food. Um, and so it's the usual supportive treatment, you know, make sure you're drinking plenty, take paracetamol as you need it, rest up, listen to your body. There is also then a section on um, oxygen saturations if it's felt that they should be discharged with an oxygen um, saturation meter. We don't in ED 
ever discharge patients with oxygen saturation meters, if we feel that is the person that's borderline enough to benefit from it, that goes through the medical team because they can then arrange to have the COVID at home follow-up. Okay, great. And I think we're all familiar with the COVID at home and it is a good service, as you say, to pick up the silent hypoxia and yeah. more support and communication with those patients. Um, and are you seeing a difficult, different clinical picture with a new variant, this, um, this wave? No, with no, age, no, it's, it's very similar to last time. Okay, and are there key lessons that you've learned so far from the emergency department that you wanted to impart with? I think the most important thing that we've learned is to spend the time and pay attention to streaming um, and testing on arrival um, and preventing, just paying that extra attention to making sure that we keep these patients as part as apart as much as possible getting we're doing a lot of testing of varying levels at the moment for the different specialties in ed but then all the admitting areas also have for example in medicine part of the acute medical unit is side rooms where patients go and have a point of care test uh, with the result available in 45 minutes to confirm covid status before they are then admitted to either a covid ward or a non-covid ward um, and I think the biggest, most important thing is uh, the basic stuff, making sure you wash your hands, making sure patients and the staff wear masks to maintain a staffing level that we can provide a, a level of service for these patients. Okay, thank you. And the, what, why, for example, then, are you not using the point of care test as the initial test? Why are you um, using the... Just because of the amount of testing kits that we have, the availability of it, it's it's just we don't have enough to do everybody with a point of care test at the moment, which is why we're using the FebDX to stream. And it's not it's not a diagnostic test. It's we just use it with an ED to help with our streaming. Um, but then once patients, because, of course, we send home 60 percent of our patients. Therefore, we don't those patients we're sending home. We don't point of care test. It's only ones being admitted. Brilliant. I think I'm going to wrap up there and thank you very much. I think it is really very powerful to hear what is happening in hospital and understand the sort of processes and treatment. So I really appreciate your valuable knowledge, Helen. Thank you very, very much. And I wanted to thank say, you. Um, if people are interested in hearing more, there's another webinar coming on this Wednesday, the 3rd of February, 1.30 to 2.30. You can book that through the LMC site. And um, that webinar will be an interactive hours covering COVID at home service, long COVID service, and also COVID from a paediatric perspective. Um, I have, with our PCN in the New Forest, we have made a COVID page with all the resource links that patients can link on with safety netting information, with COVID, at, uh, with, sorry, with the child information, with Healthier Together, with self-isolation notes, with COVID and mental health support. So it's got quite a sort of lot of resource. So if people are interested in sending out that link, I'm very happy for you to share it or have a look at it. And if you Google New Forest PCN and COVID, it will come up and then it has all the links embedded. So thank you very much. I'm going to sign off and thank you, Helen.